Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. Making, making contact. Making, contact. Making, making, making contact. Some say the new millennium began on September 11th. Since then, it's been a time of drastic and outrageous change. But as many Americans rallied behind Bush, the American flag, and retribution, my network of friends rallied under a different banner. My name is Nihal Mehta, and um, one of the founders of the Ahimsa Tour. My name is Chris Durazo. I'm a co-founder of No Say Network. My name is Annie Ko, and I've been working with the Asian Pacific Islander Coalition Against War. Manish Kenya former KUSF DJ and member of the Damal Collective, through a dance benefit for the victims of hate crimes, a peace vigil, and a tour of shame protest. These culture workers have committed themselves to civic participation and true justice at a time when flag-waving is deemed the most patriotic thing one can do. So when a friend asked if I felt more patriotic since 9-11, I thought of these people and the work they do, and without hesitation, said yes. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. I got a call after the first tower had been hit. I was right here. <laughs> My roommate was like, hey man, wake up, you should watch this. <laughs> My mom called me at 7 in the morning. Whenever my mom calls, I always think, oh God, you know, <laughs> what happened, right? And my immediate reaction was, Bush has got his war now. Make no mistake, the United States will hunt down and punish those responsible for these cowardly acts. Pretty much as soon as the towers fell and it was determined to be a terrorist act, people were talking about Pearl Harbor, you know, Day of Infamy, and making all those parallels. And of course, there's that immediate fear of backlash against Arab Americans. But what's the point of revenge? It's not going to bring the people who've died back. It's not going to prevent future attacks, in my opinion. If anything, it might create the conditions for more hatred. It is heartbreaking when you hear somebody who's not even a Muslim or Arab got killed in Arizona, who just happened to wear his traditional clothes. Within the first week, I started seeing reports on the internet about hate crimes that occurred in San Francisco. The Arab American Discrimination Committee has reported more than 200 incidents of hate crimes, six of these people died. My mom actually called me and she was like, shave your beard, you know, like, don't do anything stupid. My partner actually from Urban Groove is a Sikh, and he was in Pittsburgh at the time, and he called me up and he said, I'm scared of this right now. September 11th, 2001, ushered in an era marked by the unending war on terror, dragnet government surveillance programs, and escalating attacks on people perceived to be Muslim. Just last month, 
Khalid Jabara, a 37-year-old Lebanese-American man, was shot and killed on his front porch in Tulsa, Oklahoma, by a neighbor who had harassed his family for years, calling them dirty Arabs and Muslims. This is just one of the many reported attacks on people perceived as Muslims in the United States. Last year, there were 174 incidents of anti-Muslim violence, and that's only if you count the attacks that made headlines. But this backlash, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Below the surface is a growing Islamophobia with deep roots in history and empire. Where does the idea of the Muslim enemy come from? And how has it evolved into what we see today? 15 years after 9-11, Deepa Kumar, author of Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire, takes us back nearly 15 centuries to find out. Islam as a religion emerged in the 7th century in the Hejaz region of Arabia. And in a matter of decades, Muslim armies were able to defeat the large and powerful neighboring empires, the Persian and Byzantine empires. And by the 8th century, they had actually entered Europe. And the conquest began in Spain and then continued through the entire Iberian Peninsula, reaching all the way to Italy. Now, of course, this drew alarm in Europe. But at this point, Norman Daniel, who is one of the preeminent scholars of this period, argues that the Muslim invaders were seen as no different from any other invaders of this period. In fact, he characterizes the first 400 years of contact as the age of ignorance, where nobody in Europe even knew who the Prophet Muhammad was, let alone had any stories about the Muslim enemy. And so in the 11th century, this begins to yield to a much more sharp image of this Muslim enemy. Why? Because the others, the Normans, the Magyars, the Slavs, and so on, had been put down and they had been converted and largely integrated. And the only enemy that actually remained were the Muslims and their various kingdoms. And so what we see is a process not simply of conquest, right, and the establishment of what would be called Al-Andalus, which I'll come to shortly, and the taking over of European lands by the Muslims, but also a process of conversion. Over a course of, you know, decades and actually centuries, significant numbers would convert so that it drew alarm from the leadership. So it's in this context that the Vatican actually sets up a commission, sets up scholarship to find ways to defeat this new enemy. And the lines of attack would be the following. One, that Islam's revelations were quote-unquote pseudo-prophecies, that Muhammad was a false prophet, and that Islam is inherently violent. Now, today, of course, the first two have no resonance in our society, unless you're Glenn Beck or, you know, one of the right-wingers who continue to, I don't know, tout these lines. But, for, but the third has endured right up to the present. And I want to say a little bit about this third idea. So this came into being primarily, though not exclusively, in the context of people converting to Islam. And so the explanation was given that this was happening because people were being forced through the threat of violence to actually convert. That is the only reason they would be giving up our religion, right? In fact, that was not true. I'm not going to say that there was no violence. Absolutely, there was violence. 
This was a time of war and conquest. Everyone was attacking one another. But conversion violence, very little. And that's not because somehow Muslims are better people than Christians or what have you, but it's simply based on a recognition among Muslims that Judaism and Christianity were previous versions of a religion from the same God, right? They just happened to believe that the prophet got the right revelations and that their religion was therefore the better one. And so you could keep your religion and you could pay a tax and you didn't get killed or persecuted. You weren't an infidel in the way that Jews would actually get persecuted and forced to convert. The other way in which it was explained as to why people are converting is because Islam actually allows men to marry for women. It allows for divorce and it even allows divorced women to remarry. And for the papacy, this was terrible. Oh my God, marriage is supposed to be one woman, one man till death and destruction do us apart. And so the idea of, you know, divorce being permitted, the idea of marrying four women and so on. And so this became an explanation is that Islam permits sexual indulgences. Right? And actually from that point on, you see this really strange relationship between Europe and the East, where on the one hand, it's a sort of projection of repressed sexual fantasies onto the harem and what might be happening that I'm missing out on for crying out loud. And on the other hand, a sort of revulsion and that revulsion actually begins to set in around the 19th century or so. But anyway, this was the kind of systematic propaganda that was unleashed at this time. And the question is why? All of a sudden, why was there a need to produce this kind of propaganda? Well, two agendas which are political. The Reconquista, which is the term given to the reconquest of Spain. I mentioned earlier how the Muslim armies had actually taken all of the Iberian Peninsula and had actually even reached into Italy and set up a kingdom. So this was one of the political motivations for creating this enemy image. And the other, of course, was the Crusades, which was the holy war called by the Pope to liberate Jerusalem from the infidels. Now, of course, scholars who look at the Crusades have argued that even this original holy war wasn't really about religion. It was to establish papal control over a united Christian Europe and then to extend that power into the Middle East through the Christian Byzantine Empire and so forth. So even back then, it was about power. It was not so much about religion, but religion becomes the vehicle by which to justify this and to excite people. Even though there, there was this kind of horrible attitude towards Muslims, at the same time though, we have to recognize that among populations of Christians and Jews who lived in Al-Andalus, and Al-Andalus is the name given to the 800-year Muslim rule in the Iberian Peninsula, what was happening at this point is that while Europe had gone into what are called the Dark Ages, which is a period of economic, political, and social decline, these kingdoms were in fact on the rise. And in this context, therefore, it's not surprising that Europeans who were not Muslims would not have a negative attitude towards the Moors. This is the term given to Spanish Muslims. In fact, this is a quote from one Christian writer at the time, and he's complaining. He says, quote, the Christians love to read the poems and romances of the Arabs. They study the Arab theologians and philosophers, not to refute them, but to form a correct and elegant Arabic. Where is the layman now who reads the Latin commentaries on the Holy Scriptures or who studies the Gospels or prophets or apostles? 
Alas, all talented young Christians read and study with enthusiasm are the Arab books. They gather immense libraries at great expense. They despise the Christian language as unworthy of attention. They have forgotten their language. For everyone who can write a letter in Latin to a friend, there is a thousand who can express themselves in better in Arabic with elegance and write better poems in this language than the Arabs themselves. Well, we'll let that part go. Uh, <laughs> but you know what I mean. He is lamenting the loss of Latin and so forth. I think it is actually looking at real history like this that we can debunk the idea that somehow there is a culture unique to the West, which is Roman and Greek civilization, and then there was nothing. And then we have the Renaissance, right? In fact, that's not true. In fact, the Renaissance or the rebirth in Europe would not have happened had it not been for the translation and the development of all of these works of human knowledge. So up until the 17th century, while the Ottomans were admired by the Europeans, this would change after the 17th century, not simply because they would have defeats, such as in Vienna and elsewhere, but comparatively, they would begin a process of economic, social, and political decline compared to Europe, which was going through an era of capitalist ascendancy and which would see all sorts of advantages come out of that, including advantages of travel, munitions, communication, and so on and so forth. And this would lay the groundwork for the process of colonization that would begin in earnest in modern society in the 19th century. And so it's to that moment that I turn next and at this point, all the awe, all the admiration that existed for the Ottomans is now gone. And instead, a new vocabulary was born to talk about the East, particularly what's called the Near East. And so part of what develops is this very polarized notion of East and West, the notion of the white man's burden. People know that this is the title of a poem by Rudyard Kipling, the British poet, and in it, he describes the native as half devil, half child. And what does he mean by that? What he means is that on the one hand, they are so unknowable, they are so unrecognizable, they are so opaque to us in the West that they are demonic, they are devil-like, and therefore violence against them to subjugate them is justified. On the other hand, they are not as civilized as us, and so we must uplift them. And it was the white man's burden to drag them out of the darkness in which they live and to civilize them and to bring them into modernity. The US is a late arriving power in the Middle East. The Western interest in the Middle East, particularly after World War I, where, as Lord Curzon puts it, quote, the Allies floated to victory on a sea of oil, this is World War I, interest in oil becomes the primary reason for subjugation, for colonialism, for occupation in the Middle East. And that is, in fact, exactly what the United States is interested in in the region. At first, you have the post-war petroleum order, which is not about oil for domestic consumption in the United States, but about trying to get cheap oil to Europe in order for the Marshall Plan, which is the process of recovery of Europe, to actually proceed. And this involved a kind of order that was not simply about the oil-producing nations, but the nations through which oil was going to be transported as well, and hence Egypt, Suez, etc. This is the context in which, of course, those who do not cooperate with the US's agenda in the Middle East 
get constructed as extremists and those who do are moderates. Always the term moderate is, you know, who agrees with us? And if, if you do, then you're a moderate. And if by chance, some chance you have a disagreement, whether you're on the far right or on the far left, you become an extremist. And as we know, it's just terrible to be an extremist because it's always better to be in the middle. Now, the image of the Islamic terrorist or of the Muslim as being particularly demonic comes to life after the Iranian Revolution of 1979. This was in the context of the US-backed Shah being overthrown by a genuine people's movement that involved students, it involved workers, it involved poets, it involved religious minorities. It was a mass popular movement that led to his overthrow. But Eventually, it was Ayatollah Khomeini who actually, you know, some people argue led the counter-revolution, who actually sort of uh, vanquished all other forces and then established control for himself. And so Khomeini actually came to be seen as the personification of everything evil. Now, I disagree with Khomeini's politics. I really dislike the turn that the Iranian revolution took under him, but this is ridiculous. And of course, when you present it this way, then you can't have a rational conversation. You can't talk about why the Iranian people might be angry with the United States, why some students might have taken hostage for 444 days, personnel in the US embassy. The hostage crisis was front page headline news, and it established a certain idiom about how Iranians, how Muslims, and how the Middle East would be looked at, and that is through the eyes of mobs. These are irrational, angry mobs who for absolutely no reason are angry with the United States. On the other side, the hostages, their families were given front page coverage. Their dreams, their aspirations, their sorrows, their tragedies were talked about, whereas the motivations of the Iranians were completely ignored. That is the process of dehumanization. When you take out of the equation that perhaps Iranians are angry because when their head of state, Mohammad Mossadegh, actually tried to nationalize, democratically elected, mind you, mind you, tried to nationalize the oil industry and use their resources for the development of their own people, the CIA orchestrated a coup, got rid of him, and the Shah was placed, who, by the way, banned all other political parties except his own and ruled with an iron fist. Savak was, you know, trained by the CIA. Savak is the, the, the secret police. Torture was, you know, used against dissidents. Democracy was squashed in all sorts of ways. Now, would that make you angry? Is that a rational basis to be angry with what the United States has done? Of course, but when that's not in the picture, when human beings and their actions are not given to you in the form of rational actions, then it's easy to dehumanize them and it's easy to ignore the reasons why they do this. And by the way, this is not a narrative that ended in the 1980s after the release of the hostages. I want to say a little bit about terrorism and where this uh, discourse of terrorism actually comes from. Now, the word itself has been used at least since the 19th century but I don't want to do such a long history of it. Instead, I'm just going to speak about its usage in the post-Second World War era. What you see at this time is that after the Second World War, there are decolonization struggles that sweep the globe from India to Algeria. And a term that comes to be used by the colonial powers is those who are fighting for self-determination are terrorists. 
Why? Because in some instances, they actually do resort to coercion, they do resort to political violence. And so this becomes a way of delegitimizing the struggle that the anti-colonial movements are involved in. But it becomes a topic for global discussion, if you will, after the Munich incident. That is, after the Israeli athletes are taken hostage by a, a Palestinian group, and in the midst of the sort of uh, shootout that follows, uh, the Israeli athletes are killed. And this, of course, creates uh, you know, global attention to this issue. And the UN General Assembly would then get together to have a meeting to pass a resolution about what to think about this question. I won't go into it in too much detail, but suffice it to say that there was a huge debate between formerly colonized nations versus colonial powers as to what constitutes terrorism. Now, formerly colonized nations, which are now calling themselves part of the non-aligned movement, argue that the pursuit of political violence in the interests of self-determination, in the interests of national self-determination, is legitimate. And what we have to condemn is state terrorism. What we have to condemn is what the United States was doing in Vietnam, where over two million civilians were killed at the behest of the US military. What we have to do is condemn South African apartheid, Israeli apartheid, and so on and so forth. Eventually, by the way, the resolution gets passed, which was uh, put forward by the decolonized nations, saying that terrorism is mainly state terrorism. Now, many former colonies are unhappy about this. And so there would be a process of debate in order to shift this definition away so that today we don't think of terrorism as state terrorism, right? We think of terrorism as individual acts of violence uh, committed by certain groups of people. There's a long history to how this actually happened. Suffice it to say that Israel and the Likud party and particularly Benjamin Netanyahu and an institute called the Jonathan Institute would play an instrumental role in organizing two conferences one in Jerusalem in 1979 and the other in Washington DC in 1984, where they invite world leaders and start to create a different notion of what terrorism is, elevating Israel's enemies to the enemies of the West and re-sort of defining this entire process. And so what you start to see is through the course of the 80s and into the 90s, what was the Arab terrorist would become the Islamic terrorist and what used to be a sort of Cold War kind of conspiracy theory gives way to a new enemy. The new enemy, of course, after 9-11 would be uh, the Islamic terrorist. I don't mean to say that the events of 9-11 didn't happen, or that there are sections of the Islamist movement that have Islamic fundamentalists that do resort to violence, but I want to put this into perspective. Because in fact, if you look at the actual threat posed by quote-unquote Islamic terrorism, it is as likely as a bolt of lightning striking you on your head. Sociologist Charles Kurzman, for instance, studies this in, in, in a lot of detail, and he shows that in the 10 years since 9-11, of the 150,000 murders that have taken place in the United States, Muslim Americans are responsible for a grand total of 33. That is less than 1%, right? Another sociologist, John Mueller, his book is called Overblown, how politicians and terrorism experts hype the terrorist threat. In the foreword, he says, worldwide, the number of people who die from terrorism 
is about the same number of Americans every year who die from drowning in their bathtubs. So when you think about that, you have to ask the question, why is this so important? Why is this threat heightened to the extent that it is? And I think the best example, that, to me at least, is going back to the era of the Cold War. Some of you have gray hair, so maybe you'll remember this, but there used to be a drill called duck and cover where kids were taught in preparation for a nuclear attack from the Soviet Union to duck underneath their desks and cover their heads. There's a, you should watch this video, I show it in my classes. It's Bert the turtle, who's this really cute, adorable turtle who uh, recoils into his shell as a way to protect himself from attacks. And that's what children are being taught. Now, obviously, um, ducking under your desk isn't really going to protect you from a nuclear attack. And so what's the point of this? The point of this is to carry out ritualistically fear-mongering, right? You keep doing this again and again, you're going to somewhere in the back of your mind be scared enough that you give your consent to both the hot and the cold war with the Soviet Union, as well as the policing of dissent right here in the United States in the form of McCarthyism, the witch hunts, the blacklists, and so on and so forth. Let me start to come to a close with this. And that is, I mentioned earlier that the white man's burden, in fact, has been revived. Instead of half devil, half child, we have half terrorist, half victim. And victims tend to be generally brown women. It tend to be Muslim women, right? Particularly from the Afghan war, Afghan women incredibly oppressed, isolated, she's scared, she, she clearly needs to be rescued. But in fact, this is not the case. That is to say, I'm not saying that Muslim women, women who live in Muslim-majority countries don't face oppression. Of course they do. Women all over the world face sexism. They just happen to face it in, in different ways in different parts of the world. So right here in Texas, we have lost the right to abortion. If we don't control our bodies, we don't control our lives. Women in this country still earn about 70 to 75 cents to the man's dollar for the exact same job. There has been an epidemic of rape in the military, and so by no means are women in this country somehow liberated compared to women in other parts of the world. And therefore this idea, this imperialist feminist idea, is really one that serves a political agenda and not the agenda of rescuing women. What we don't see, of course, is the agency of women. The fact that they are able to stand up for themselves. Groups like Rawa in Afghanistan resisted the US attack. They said, we can liberate ourselves. Please don't come into this country. But their voices went unheeded. There is nothing natural about the image of the Muslim enemy. Rather, it is constructed, as I have shown, at particular historic moments in order to serve political interests. And therefore, fighting this isn't simply about educating people about Islam, which, as I argued earlier, um, you know, uh, it, this is about politics. This is really not about the religion. We have to raise the issue of oil. Oil not for uh, US interest. I never thought I would agree with anything that Dick Cheney ever said, but there's one thing I agree with, and he said, whoever controls oil controls the world economy. And I think that's absolutely right. And therefore, the US's interests continue to be in the Middle East, this control over the flow of oil, and it's what necessitates 
this kind of, on the one hand, enemy image, on the other hand, the victim image. We need to go rescue them. These are the narratives that get put forward in order to win our consent. Raising difficult questions and going against the grain is never easy. But I think we have an obligation to do that because we pay. We pay not only in terms of the trillions of dollars that is used to build up the national security state, by which I don't mean only wars. I also mean drones. I also mean the mass surveillance and so on and so forth. So we pay a, a price in terms of the quality of our lives, our ability to live in a democracy. And I think we've got to speak out against that at every opportunity we get. Thanks. That was Deepa Kumar, professor of media studies and Middle Eastern studies at Rutgers University. She's the author of Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire. Her talk, Constructing the Muslim Enemy from the Crusades to 9-11, was recorded at the University of Texas, Austin by Jeff Zavala with Z Graphics Productions. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. The segment you heard at the top of the show was an excerpt from Robin Takayama's five-song EP. To download a copy of this program or to subscribe to our podcast, check us out at radioproject.org. Lisa Redman is our executive director. Our producers are Monica Lopez, RJ Lozada, and Marie Cha. Juan Booth is our digital content and community engagement manager. I'm Marie Cha. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.